Welcome to the Pregnancy Sickness Support Podcast. Everything you need to know about hypermesis gravidarum and nausea and vomiting in pregnancy with your hosts, Karen and Lindsay. With this podcast, we aim to combine valuable evidence-based information from Karen with Lindsay's personal experience as an HG survivor. We are passionate about raising awareness of hypermesis and nausea and vomiting in pregnancy and supporting women who are or have suffered to know that you are not alone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Pregnancy Sickness Support Podcast. This week, we're joined by Ken Hodson and Caitlin Dean to discuss Ondansetron. Ken is a consultant in obstetrics and maternal medicine in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and head of the Teratology Information Service, a service funded by Public Health England to provide information and surveillance regarding medication use in pregnancy. Caitlin is chairperson of Pregnancy Sickness Support and a nurse specialist in high premises gravidarum. Thank you for joining us. It's lovely to see you. So today we're talking about Ondansetron. And there's a lot of controversy and conflicting information, different opinions surrounding Ondansetron, probably more so than any other medication used to treat hypermesis. So Caitlin, can you tell us about the history of Ondansetron and, and why there's so much information online about it? Uh, yeah, so Ondansetron uh, was originally developed about around about 30 years ago now, um, mostly for the treatment of chemotherapy um, and radiotherapy, nausea and vomiting. Um, there, there's a reasonable amount of money in that compared to treatments for um, pregnancy sickness. Um, and so that's quite a big area for antiemetic development. It was found to be quite effective for those, um, for, for that, those indications and for um, post-operative nausea and vomiting. But of course, over the years, it, it ends up, drugs end up getting used in pregnancy. Um, and it was found also to be reasonably effective for um, for pregnancy sickness. Um, largely, anecdotally, because there haven't been proper trials um, in that. Um, but as a result, it's been used um, worldwide for, for well over 20 years now for um, pregnancy, nausea and vomiting. A lot of drugs have controversy around them and there's been various um, controversy around on Danzatron. Um, it stems from, so, so there's, initially there was controversy over uh, publication bias on the efficacy of Ondansetron um, for its main indications. Um, but over the years, uh, there's been more controversy over um, the safety of it in pregnancy uh, for the fetus. And that's it, the reasons for that sort of thing are quite complex. Over in America um, and in other parts of the world, litigation is a much bigger industry than in the UK. So people sue each other for all sorts of stuff. And if there's anything wrong with your baby at any point, you you look to sue people um, for that. And partly that's because you kind of need to sue someone in order to get the money for the ongoing treatment that a baby's going to require if, for example, they have um, a heart problem or, or an oral cleft or something. That's not just automatically on the NHS over there, like we have here. Um, and so there's, there's people will just try and sue. Um, and so as a result, there's been uh, people that have then tried to find uh, links between problems um, of taking a particular medica medication in pregnancy and then that having particular problems for, for the babies and so on. And also when there's something wrong with your baby, actually it's, a lot of people do try and find a reason, a, a cause that wasn't like their fault, um, like HG's people's fault in some way. Um, and that's, that's part of the problem as well, is that people... Um, you know, don't recognise that you, you're taking a medication for a, a reason and that not taking the medication 
also has um, consequences. And it, it may be that, you know, any of the problems that people have um, identified with with, ba- with their individual baby um, after HG and taking on Dansatron is, is, could equally be because of the HG and so on. So it's just not, it's just not a really very clear-cut situation. Um, but that's the sort of historic background around it. And that's also why there's quite a lot of research about on Dansatron. Um, it's because people have tried to sue the manufacturers and there are ongoing cases in America um, against the manufacturers. So there's been, yeah, large, large data set studies um, of it. Sufferers have always struggled with access to ondansetron for treatment of high premises, but particularly now. Ken, what's happened recently to cause this and, and why has it happened? Um, so um, in August 2019, the um, European's Medicine Agency, who are responsible for the regulations of uh, medication in the EU, um, issued a warning about ondansetron in view of a new study by Hubrex, um, which was a large study which showed a very small increase in the incidence of cleft lip and palate in women who were given ondansetron. So um, they reviewed that study and uh, another study and concluded that ondansetron was suspected to cause oral facial malformations. Um, and issued a warning about use of the drug in the first trimester, saying that the drug should not be used in the first trimester. However, um, there are several issues with this warning. Um, The main one being is that the actual background risk of cleft lip and palate is very small. So it's uh, 0.11% of pregnancies will be complicated by cleft lip and palate. And the additional risk that they observed in the Ondansetron study takes that risk to 0.14%. So a very tiny increase in absolute risk. Um, But the um, medicines agencies, the regulatory agencies have been under a lot of pressure because of not reacting to potential problems with drugs in the past. And the, the obvious example is that of sodium valproate. So now whenever there's a concern about a drug, the medicine agency issues a warning. It's difficult because a lot of doctors take that to mean that the drug is not safe to use at all in pregnancy. And this issue of warning from a regulatory authority like the EMA or the MHRA often triggers a a response from doctors to rewrite their guidelines to stop using the drug, even when the evidence shows that there isn't really a, a substantial increase in the absolute risk to the pregnant woman. And what should happen really is that the new evidence is discussed with pregnant women um, in order for them to make an informed decision about whether they want to take the drug or not, not not that there's a blanket ban on the drug. And that feels really important, actually, that that, that, that's a real shift, isn't it, from this drug is not safe and we will not issue it to let's talk about the risks and let's talk about the different, the, the, the slight increase in risk and a more collaborative approach with the woman. And it feels like that's missing at the moment with ondansetron. Yes, as I say, um, I think that the regulatory authorities have been under a lot of pressure and a lot of criticism for their um, for, for not reacting to concerns about drugs in the past. But let's put that into context that a drug like sodium valproate, and there's a 10% risk of abnormality associated with that drug. That's a lot more mm-hmm. than... Um, a lot more than ondansetron, which 
arguably there was an increased risk in the um, observational data, but it's a very, very small increase in risk. And and in in terms of increasing the risk from 0.11 to 0.14%, for most pregnant women, they wouldn't consider that to be an increased risk. So it's had a really significant impact on women across the UK, both in primary and secondary care. So Ken, how can something like this be prevented from happening again? Or, or are pregnant women kind of always going to be at risk of losing access to life-saving medications when there are circumstances like this? Well, when, whenever um, the EMA or the MHRA, the regulatory authorities issue a warning, um, um, they've got to understand that that has significant impact to both doctors and patients. Um, and what should happen, I think, in future is that the um, regulatory authority need to have more of a dialogue, particularly with the doctors, healthcare practitioners and patient groups um, before releasing warnings about drugs. Because, um, f- for example, in this situation, um, most doctors that I know feel that the, um, that the warning is, is over-egged in a way. It's, it, it's too draconian a warning for the degree of risk that's associated with the drug which is very very small Um, and to ban a drug that is very effective at treating nausea and vomiting in pregnancy um, it denies the patients the ability to make the decision for themselves as to whether they want to take that small increased risk or not Um, and I think that what we need is better dialogue with women um, with patient groups and with healthcare professionals that look after pregnant women um, in order to get a a, a consensus with regard to a warning um, prior to its release. Because once you've released the warning, it's very difficult then to undo that. And it causes a lot of harm, it causes a lot of anxiety, and and patients read about it in the the media um, and and understandably become very anxious about the drug. So undoing a warning once it's been done is very, very difficult to do. Um, I think we do need um, better surveillance in the UK and in European countries for for drugs in pregnancy. We need to be um, looking at ongoing data. We need to be collecting data ongoing and analysing the data um, because oftentimes what you see with drugs is that that, that you get a cluster of cases that causes a, a concern about a drug use in pregnancy. Then as you acquire more data, actually those concerns often go away or alternative those concerns will build because you'll have more cases and then you know you're more reliable then in terms of identifying whether the drug is safe or not safe in pregnancy so i think there's two things there's the um, liaison between the um, regulatory authorities and patient groups uh, healthcare providers but also the need to collect better data regarding drug safety in pregnancy and as part of the work that we do on the helpline, um, we are regularly contacted by women who absolutely feel that anxiety about medications or have even been refused um, that medication. So Ken, can you talk us through how on Downsatron works and any potential risks and side effects? And then Caitlin, can you go through how and when you can take it, the doses, um, the forms and, and how it should be used? So certainly, so um, on Downsatron, um acts on the vomiting center in the brain. Uh, It acts on a receptor there called a 5-HT receptor, and it blocks that receptor. Um, And as Caitlin said at the beginning, it was primarily used for um, drugs that are associated with cancer treatments, so chemotherapy drugs, and and was found to be extremely effective for those patients. Um, And 
its use has increased over time um, in, in pregnancy and treating nausea and vomiting and hyperemesis in pregnancy um, and, and is now um, very commonly prescribed and it is very effective over and above the other treatments that are also prescribed for hyperemesis. I found it to be like a switch. I was 14 weeks pregnant and I had been mm -hmm. vomiting solidly since about five weeks. I tried every other medication before um, ondansetron and I just couldn't stop vomiting. And I took ondansetron and it was like somebody just flicked a switch and the vomiting just stopped. And yeah. I, I couldn't believe that that was even possible. And I remember hearing the doctor saying to somebody else, oh, you know, it's a, it's a really powerful medication. It's not licensed for use in pregnancy, but, and it's often used for cancer patients, for chemo patients. And just thinking, I don't care, it works. Give me the ondansetron. Yeah, I mean, the, the actual evidence that ondansetron causes harm is, is, uh, is there's an association. It's not necessarily a causation is the other thing to say about the literature. So um, th there is, if you believe the literature, a small risk in terms of cleft lip and palate. But as you say, that's offset by the fact that you can eat and drink, you can function, you want to continue the pregnancy. Um, and we're talking sometimes about patients with severe nausea and vomiting or hyperemesis in pregnancy who, who, who get to such a state that they actually want to terminate the pregnancy. Now, not taking on Danzatron in that circumstance it is crazy if you haven't tried to use it because, you know, the risk is so small of, of causing any problem for the baby. Um, and, and potentially you, you'd be thinking about termination of pregnancy if, if, if you can't get on top of the symptoms. So, so I, I, you know, I think you, what you say is right. For some people in particular, Danzatron is the only treatment that works. Certainly that's our experience um, amongst the, the women on the helpline is that, you know, it, some women it doesn't really make that much difference for, but it's the only one of all the treatments, which there are a fair whack of women who literally describe it as a mir miracle cure. And none of the other treatments would be described like that ever by anyone. <laughs> so so it is, the, it is the only one that can ha potentially have that effect for some women, um, which is why it's such an important weapon in our sort of arsenal against hypermesis. Um, but as you, you were saying, Ken, about like the association as opposed to the causation, I think that a big problem with this whole um, topic and a big part of what the EMA missed is the appreciating the risks associated with not using ondansetron. And you can't weigh up the risks of anything from a one-sided point of view. I mean, if you did that about any medication in or out of pregnancy, you simply wouldn't use any medication because everything has a risk. Um, even just, you know, an anaphylactic reaction or whatever, you know, everything has a risk associated with it. And so you wouldn't take anything unless there was a benefit to it. And you can't decide whether or not to take something if you're not going to look at those benefits. And actually, you know, the women in all the studies for taking on Danzatron, they've got severe enough hypermesis to warrant taking a medication. Therefore, they probably haven't been taking their folic acid. They're probably malnourished um, and dehydrated. And actually not taking folic acid is also associated uh, with oral cleft, um, it, with a stronger association. So, you know, you can't rule those kind of things out and you can't say, well, you know, there's a, a, a risk if you take this, that there's an increased risk that your baby will have an oral cleft without the same conversation about, but if I don't take this, what's the risk to my baby? And realistically, there's like maybe five to 10% chance that you're gonna to have to terminate your baby. 
you can't look at it in isolation of just the risk of taking this medication. It's got to be in that wider picture of, of all the complications and, and implications of not taking it and the risks to the mum and the baby and the long-term risks to the mum um, and the long-term risks to the baby. You know, there's also been good good papers coming out recently about the effects of malnutrition um, on the on the infant and the increased risks of autistic spectrum disorders and cardiometabolic disorders and so on. The, the psychological impact as well of, um, of not having your nausea and vomiting treated and um, that there is evidence now that these women are, are suffering from sort of post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. uh, and psychological disturbance and the impact of that on looking after a newborn baby and, and postnatal depression. Um, it's very difficult to, to kind of quantify the effects of that um, in terms of you know, um, risk benefit. Um, to, to mum and baby. So I think that um, you know, having untreated hyperemesis carries not only a, a physical and metabolic consequence, but also a psychological one. I mean, we, we do have women call our helpline who are suicidal. And we have over the last year had women who have made suicide attempts because of hyperemesis, because they're in a position where they, you know, they feel like they have to terminate their baby that they don't want to do they want their baby but the but they can't you know the treatment is they're not getting it under control and you know all the sort of psychological implications around that and I mean that's just the idea that a woman would be denied on Danzatron for this possible this association with a, an increased risk of oral cleft when she's so unwell that she's actually considering killing herself over it it's just it's just such a a lack of appreciation for the severity of this condition. And I think um, that's, you've absolutely nailed it, Caitlin, because the hopelessness you can feel as a woman who cannot stop being sick, and it's not just a little bit sick, we're talking violent vomiting that is uncontrollable, where you feel like you can't breathe. And the thought of that going on for nine months, I defy anybody to experience that for nine days and not want treatment for it. Yeah. And there are treatments that you can take that are effective and as you said the risks are minimal and yet the risk of not taking it so you know the whole context of pregnancy and the mental impact and the ongoing impact of of not having that treated just it's immeasurable and that's where there was a real mismatch with the ema um and then having not not even consulted women with this condition who might need to take this in in, in pregnancy and they sort of hid behind this idea about using it only, they were only referring to license indications. Well, you don't use ondansetron for the license indications in pregnancy generally because you don't use chemotherapy in first trimester. It, I mean, if you need a, a, an operation that warrants ondansetron, then you probably, again, the benefits going to outweigh the risks anyway in the first trimester. Um, but they just, they didn't seem to appreciate why a woman with high premises would want to take this medication and all the all the consequences around that and you know our women read that paper that had come out a year beforehand and we were all like this is fantastic i mean you know this is a huge piece of research and all they can all they can possibly identify is an association with a, an increased three in ten thousand oral clefts well to us this is good news this basically to us means that ondansetron is safe safe and we know it's effective um uh, yet the EMA took it to be the almost the exact opposite. They read that same paper that women with high premises took as such a huge reassurance um, and a reason to take it confidently. 
And they interpreted it as, oh my goodness, this risk is so serious that we should even go as far as advising that women using it should be on contraceptive, which to me is like a thalidomide style warning. I mean, that is such scaremongering. And the impact that's had on healthcare professionals who, who go, oh, I, I, I haven't got time to read the paper associated with this. But I mean, if they're telling, if they've got it written in the thing that you should be on contraceptive if you're using this, then it's definitely not suitable in pregnancy. And it, so, and that's why our women are being told by their GPs, the GPs are phoning them up and saying, you've got to come off this medication. There's an, an alert. It's dangerous. That's just complete madness but then when you look at that language around it and it causes oral clefts and you know women should be it mustn't mustn't be used in the first trimester or i think they 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 said it shouldn't be used and they seem to think that this was um a semantic difference with uh, between shouldn't be used and mustn't be used <laughs> so mm. um and you know but when a doctor reads that a gp in the surgery who's prescribed this for someone you know, they're thinking, oh my goodness, oh, what have I done to this woman's baby? And um, GPs, as we know, Caitlin, are already anxious about prescribing yeah. during pregnancy. And and rightly so, you know, there's a history behind all of this and we know that. And, they, you know, we don't want GPs or anybody prescribing willy-nilly, not that they would. But yeah. this has reduced confidence rather than increased Massively. confidence Massively. and left it's women scared. suffering unnecessarily. And it's, and it's understandable why GPs are scared like that. You know, there is this history with thalidomide. And actually when the EMA, who they expect to have done the proper risk-benefit analysis and to be giving that, um, that advice on really solid evidence, um, why should they have to go back to those original papers and critically appraise them? And actually a lot of GPs haven't necessarily done kind of um, research critical appraisal skills in in many years and they're a jack of all trades and they need to have their their they have to have a bit of knowledge about a lot of different stuff and it's not necessarily reasonable for them to be able to go to the two different major papers that are out there at the moment and to be able to critically appraise them themselves um that's what they rely on the ema and the mhra to do for them so it's it you know it's it's kind of not the gp's fault here i do i think maybe doctors in hospitals consultant obstetricians and so on do have more of a duty to be able to critically appraise that and, and weigh up the EMA's advice um, but certainly you shouldn't be expecting GPs to do that they need to be getting that from from above but how we how we give them back that confidence well I mean the MHRA's subsequent update I think has gone a long way on that hopefully um, because that does weigh it that was they were very good with the way they handled that they, they stopped they were about to put out the same statement as the EMA because that's how it feeds down through the individual countries and we kind of went hang on a minute can you just <laughs> speak to us first and they actually did and they went back to consultation phase and they really did listen to us and they put out a statement making it clear that actually high premises can be life-threatening and if this medication um, is required and it and the benefits for from it outweigh this tiny 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 weeny little risk um, then you know that's that it can be used um, if, the, if the woman understands. And that's, that's all we can do about any medication, really. So, Caitlin, can you, can you talk about how um, ondansetron can be used by women? So for, for women listening or for their friends or family who are listening, knowing that they have um, a sufferer who's taking ondansetron who, who has had that discussion or whatever, can you, can you kind of go into a little bit of uh, detail about how ondansetron can be used for high premises, the dose and all of yeah. those kind of things? 
So frustratingly, we have never had a really good randomised control trial looking at the most effective dose of ondansetron, the most effective route, um, and what dose best creates symptom control whilst not creating too many side effects. The side effects may mostly being um, severe constipation and headaches. Uh, that's what our women tend to, to find to the, to the point where the constipation can make it so they can't actually take the ondansetron. So we don't have robust evidence. And that's uh, what I'm going to say is not based on um, proper sort of uh, research trials. But from the experience of, you know, um, counselling hundreds, of, if not thousands of women over the last however many years um, through our helpline and so on, um, what I have found um, most effective for, for women is to be prescribed it. Well, I mean, if you if you can't take oral medication, then obviously there's suppositories and injections and there's melts as well. Um, but they're all very expensive and you're going to struggle to get anyone to prescribe them in the UK. So what tends to be most effective is the four milligram, which is the cheapest tablet on the market. And really, if, if your GP is saying that it's too expensive, that's complete nonsense. It's not particularly expensive anymore at all. Uh, the, like I said, the other ones are quite expensive, the suppositories and the melts and so on. Um, and actually, the 8-milligram tablets are more expensive. So the 4-milligram tablets allow you to use, to use it to the most um, sort of flexibility as well, because you can actually take, I mean, on the green, in the green top guidelines, it's 16 to 24 milligrams over 24 hours. Now, with a 4-milligram tablet, you can, if you say taking 16 milligrams and you find that that's controlling your symptoms, you can, you can take it in a way that... Um, works best with your sort of symptom pattern so a lot of women are more sick in say the morning or the evening and if you're if you've got four milligram tablets then you could take for example eight in the morning if that's when you're worse so you take two tablets and then you spread your other two out through the day or if you're much worse in the evening you might only need four milligrams in the morning four at lunchtime and you save like a double dose for the evening because you can take actually um if you're in hospital and you're having an iv then you'll get a 16 milligram um, iv dose in one go so, so it kind of gives women a bit of flexibility. And, and, if, and with the four milligrams as well, like if you've taken your four milligram in the morning and it's a particularly bad day um, and a couple of hours later it hasn't had enough of an effect, you could take another one. Uh, but then you need to spread the rest of your doses out accordingly. So I just think it gives women quite a lot of control over their own symptoms and what, what works best for them. It can make it easier when you need when you feel like your symptoms are managed and you want to start reducing the dose as well. Yeah, exactly. Because it means that you can kind of plan which one you're going to drop. So if you're spreading them out for through the day, you can kind of drop whichever one feels most comfortable. So quite often it's that sort of afternoony one, um, yeah. and then see how you see how you go. Whereas other medications, it's almost a it's not a cold turkey, but it, you know it's harder yeah. to spread it out. You either take it or you don't. You can't. Yeah. You don't have that flexibility. Uh, yeah, and if you and with with ondansetron, you know, if you've managed to get down to say um, twelve milligrams a day or eight milligrams a day, but you know that you've got something, I don't know, your kid's school event or something that you've got to get out to, and you know it's going to, you can just take that extra one so that you've had an eight milligram dose. And I just think that gives women a huge amount of um, personal control over their um, their lives, which which high premises has already ripped so far out of their lives, and you know everything's in just kind of free fall when you're so unwell. So it's nice to be able to have that that degree of control over your over your symptoms. Um, so that's that's the main thing. I mean, obviously, if you are too unwell to be taking oral medication and, and managing it like that, then there is you know um, you may get it IV in hospital or by injection. Um, I found the melts quite useful in my third pregnancy. Yeah. It tastes a bit gross, but I sort of deliberately created an association between the taste and knowing that I would feel less sick in about an hour. 
Mm, <laughs> it kind of helped psychologically almost the taste. I think if I tried it now, I'd be like, yeah. Pits of HG Hell. Every now and again, there's like a. I find an old box of Ondansetron melts, like at the back. There's nothing in it, but it's just the box, and there's just a bit of a, a an aroma. And I think, Ooh. but it's quite a nice way to transition from being in hospital and having IV meds to then going to oral meds. You don't have to go straight to trying to swallow water, and you know you can have the melts, and even if it's just for a few days, just to kind of ease you out yeah. of that kind of hospital mode. And a lot of women find the suppositories really effective mm. as well. Um, certainly in other European countries, they, they, they think that we're a bit balmy to be giving people with a, a vomiting and nausea condition or medication. They just yeah. put everything, everything up the bum when you're being sick. Makes a lot yeah, of sense. I mean, the, the suppositories can be really useful. Yeah. Um, so Ken, what should healthcare professionals be doing regarding using Ondansetron to treat nausea and vomiting in pregnancy and hyperemesis? Well, um, I think um, our recommendation from the UK Teratology Information Service is to, to follow the RCOG Green Top Guidelines, and that's to um, use Ondansetron's second line for the treatment of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. Um, first line treatments being drugs such as cyclozine and metoclopramide. However, that being said, um, it's interesting because there's been more research on um, on Danzatron than any of the other first-line drugs. Um, we we don't have this degree of level of data regarding drug safety for those drugs at all, and yet we're promoting them as first-line. So I think it's a bit of a paradox. Um, if Danzatron works for the patient, I think you should counsel them with regard to the small additional risk, but to try and counsel them in a positive way, to say that the risk is, the absolute risk is small. Um, and um, if you've got very severe nausea and vomiting, then it's certainly um, something to consider and recommend. And Caitlin, how can sufferers and their supporters advocate when they come up against being refused medication or being told it's not safe? Yeah, it's a real battle. And, and, and at the moment, we don't really have an answer to that. I mean, you can certainly print off the MHRA statement. You can, you can use language with your healthcare professional that lets them know that you understand what you're talking about here. Um, you can ask direct questions like, can you tell me the absolute risk? And can you tell me the risks associated with not taking it and staying as unwell as I am and being malnourished in pregnancy? And I mean, unfortunately, a lot of doctors will, will then tell you, well, there's no risks associated with not with being malnourished and dehydrated because there's a real underappreciation for that, unfortunately, even though, again, there's really pretty decent research out there for it. Can I just mention the UK Teratology Information Service? So we're um, uh, funded by Public Health England to provide information to pregnant women and um, and their healthcare providers. So um, you could ask your GP or healthcare provider um, whether they would seek advice from the UK Teratology Information Service, and it, it'll be very similar to what I'm saying uh, on the podcast today. So you could ask your, your, your GP to contact the service. There's also the um, Medicines Use in Pregnancy, which is a patient-facing website, and we produce information sheets for, for patients and there's one on nausea and vomiting in pregnancy and on Danzatron. so um, I would recommend that uh, patients go to those as well. We've got links to both of those things on so we've done quite a comprehensive um, page on our website um, with regards 
with the MHRA link and the UKTIS link and then uh, some previous um, material that Caitlin's recorded and then also we've got another page um, with regards to um, the piece that you wrote recently Ken um, so we've got links on the website that are on the, the home page so if anybody is struggling to kind of find websites or you know look yep. at screens or whatever then they can go straight to ours and click through um, to those yep. um, those pages and, and maybe taking some of if you're actually just being refused the treatment maybe taking some of those um official statements along with you would, would give it um you know some some strength yeah and sadly it's the case sometimes of changing doctors and it's so frustrating isn't it that that women are having to fight so hard to get treatment that is available that it can be effective and yet the onus is on them being so well informed and empowered at a time when they feel like death yeah. it's just it feels like such a hard place to be and it's it frustrates me that we're still in this place and my, my first high-premises pregnancy was 10 years ago and yet I feel like lots of things have moved on and and so many things haven't and it's so frustrating yeah. So what would either of you say to healthcare professionals then who were refusing to provide ondansetron to sufferers? Well, I think that's um, a very paternalistic approach. And um, unfortunately, they've, they've obviously been uh, affected by the warning produced by the EMA and its impact. Um, I would say that um, you would need to look back at the actual literature and people who treat pregnant women are not happy with the recommendation and don't feel that it's appropriate and, and feel that it's um, overly cautious um, and, and to encourage them to, to kind of seek um, an alternative kind of interpretation of the data and, uh, and to read what's written on the UK TIS and um, BUMPS and um, pregnancy sickness support websites. Um, we'll produce, uh, you know, um, a different picture and um, you know we're supported by clinicians many many you know upstanding clinicians feel um, quite aggrieved at the EMA PRAC warning um, and um, don't support it so I think that clinicians need to they do need to explain the risk we need to move away from saying these drugs are banned to saying to women well these drugs are associated with this degree of risk um, to you and your baby and these are the benefits of taking the treatment. I think we need to move away from just sort of saying um, drugs are, are safe or not safe. Um, we need to be informing patients and, and encouraging them to make their own decisions about the drug in a, in a positive way. Thank you for listening to the Pregnancy Sickness Support Podcast. Everything you need to know about pregnancy sickness and hyperemesis gravidarum. For more information and support, please visit our website www.pregnancysicknesssupport.org.uk.